Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Gail Sheehy, noted journalist and author, died on August 24, 2020, of complications from pneumonia possibly brought on by COVID-19. She was 83. I had a chance to interview Gail Sheehy, at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, on September 26, 2014, while she was on tour for her final book, a memoir, Daring My Passages. Here is the interview with introduction that aired on KPFA's Bookwaves program. My guest is Gail Sheehy, whose latest book is a memoir titled Daring My Passages. Gail Sheehy is a feminist icon, a journalist, and investigative reporter at a time when few women took on that role. As one of a stable of authors at Clay Felker's New York Magazine at its inception in 1968, Sheehy was a founding practitioner of what came to be called the New Journalism, along with writers such as Tom Wolfe, David Halberstam, Ken Oletta, and Gay Talese during the heyday of in-depth magazine journalism. Her breakthrough book was the international bestseller Passages, which dealt with the various stages in a person's life. It was Gail Sheehy who first discovered the Beals and set the stage for the various iterations of the story of Grey Gardens. Her personality profiles of politicians, such as Newt Gingrich, Hillary Clinton, Margaret Thatcher and many others have become the stuff of legend. She has written for not only New York Magazine, but also The New Yorker, Atlantic, Vanity Fair, and elsewhere. In her memoir, Daring My Passages, she discusses all of this as well as her long relationship with Clay Felker, from their days together on New York Magazine through their long affair and marriage. She also talks about the passages in her own life, which are presented in works such as The Silent Passage, Menopause, New Passages, Mapping Your Life Across Time, Understanding Men's Passages, and Passages in Caregiving. I began by asking her about the correct pronunciation of her last name. It's she-he. She-he. And I often say it's she and he back to back because I'm an equal okay. gender equality. As one of the founders of new journalism in the 1960s, and we look at new journalism today and how things have blurred between fact and fiction, when you look at that and you look at the origins of new journalism, do you think things took a wrong path at some point? Not at all. And it's not about blurring the lines between fact and fiction. Um, the new journalism was about using the tools of fiction to make reading journalistic stories more interesting and deeper because the practitioners of the new journalism practice saturation reporting. Saturation reporting uh, meant that we plunged ourselves into the milieu of the 
situation we were reporting about, or in my case, I did character studies of people that I wanted to write character profiles about. I would interview 40 or 50 people around my subject before I ever went to the subject. But by then, I knew almost more about him or her than they knew about themselves because a lot of it they'd forgotten or they had a different view of what they actually did in childhood. So um, I would then collaborate with them and with their avid interest in trying to piece together the habit of action at different stages of their life because that would be the best way to predict what kind of a leader it would be. At New York Magazine, you worked under Clay Felker, and, of course, you were married to Clay Felker later on. What kind of advice did he give you in terms of this kind of reportage? Well, the first thing was he believed in point of view. Objective reporting was kind of a, a fantasy, the idea that you could put aside all of your, you know, psychosocial training for years and uh, your habits and attitudes when you went to report something. So he said, let's just take it the way it is honestly. Everybody has a point of view, and he would marry the journalist with the story that he thought it would make the most interesting point of view on whatever it was, you know, the Ferguson uh, riots or the or Vietnam veterans coming home. And then the other thing was to use dialogue, where you could use scene setting, and that was what he did with me the very first assignment he gave me. I pitched him a story when I was just a girl journalist up in the women's department where they had us sequestered, um, and I dared to, pub to pitch him a story. And I told him a story about a scene that I had seen uh, young men, uh, kind of loser men, who had rented a house on Fire Island, and they wanted to attract beautiful women, so they offered them free space in the house, and if they would sit on their beach blanket and attract other beautiful women like flypaper, Paper. And I said, they were holding specimen viewing parties. And that got his interest. He said, did you go to a specimen viewing party? I said, of course. He said, then write it just like you described it. Take us there. Take us to that scene. And that was the, my jumping off point. He was daring me to do something different, as he did everybody else. And so I wrote a story that took you to that scene. And that's what the new journalism was. And people like uh, Tom Wolfe <laughs> practiced it as well. Wolf, I think, later wound up being a right-winger. Is that correct? Well, I think he always was, but he held his conservatism very close to the vest because he was mainly just a demon satirist, absolutely had a scalpel with um, humor all over it. And you couldn't read anything of Tom Wolfe that didn't make you crack up and make you see what you were looking at with a different lens. Do you think that new journalism that you practiced I'm just wondering where it's taken us, Gail Sheehy. Well, I think the the simplest part of new journalism, which is setting a scene before you start giving the facts, right. has been incorporated in all journalism. That's what you see front page of the New York Times. They'll always have a couple of paragraphs setting, you know, it's about Tony in this situation and how his life has fallen apart, and then they'll go on to tell you what the social science is behind that. What has happened is the consolidation of media owners and having like six corporate owners constantly, you know, squeezing, 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 so that now there isn't enough room to do saturation reporting. There isn't enough money to to send a journalist somewhere for a month or two, except on rare occasions. I'm 
Right. Certainly, the New York Times does it, the uh, New Yorker, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, and some others. But by and large, everything is, has gotten much shorter, much more immediate. It's all Twitterized. It's online. There's no more that's, you, you know, a 750-word story is a long story. Our stories were minimum 5,000 words, often eight or 10,000 words. Gail Sheehy. How long did it take you to do one of these long-form stories? And in, in terms of the support for it, were you on salary at New York? No, I wasn't. I was always a freelance writer because I had a child and I had to be at home uh, doing work. But I also went off on long uh, reportage. I did. I spent a month in London to write about Prime Minister Thatcher for Vanity Fair and interviewed 55 people. And came up with a story that was hilarious in one aspect about her electrical baths, which were making her look 20 years younger when she was in her 60s. And I had to actually take an electrical bath. It's a perfect example of saturation reporting. I actually had to strip naked, climb up on the top stool, and get into this bath that was operated by an Indian Ayurveda specialist who manipulated the current to, you know, release your energy. And I had done a lot of things for a journalistic story, but electrocution wasn't one of them. So this was my first experience. And it actually was quite a pleasant sensation. And it led to uh, opening up the whole relationship between Margaret Thatcher and Mikhail Gorbachev, which was a huge world-changing relationship because Madame Veronique finally let me know that Thatcher had recommended Gorby to be in her tub. And you met all these people, so I want to ask you a little bit about your view of what it was like to see them and what you thought of them. Uh, you went to dinner with Henry Kissinger, and I, I know that for a lot of us, Henry Kissinger is kind of like the arch devil. You Absolutely, know. and he was in my mind. I didn't go to dinner with him. My husband then, Clay Felker, or he wasn't yet my husband, but we, we were living together, invited him to dinner, and I was the hostess. And I said, how can you? He's the, the killer of Cambodia. And we had a Cambodian refugee who was ultimately going to be our child. And then he invited Kay Graham and a lot of other stars, David Frost and so on. And how to put this dinner together was terrifying. But what I saw was that Kissinger and Kay Graham, then head of the Washington Post, would publish the Pentagon Papers and infuriated Nixon. And she was probing Kissinger about, you know, how what was Nixon going to do to her? And he was baiting her and kidding her about how bad it was going to be. But what you saw was they were actually like kin. They were great friends. They went to the movies together. They went to private dinners together. They were arch opposites politically, but power loves power. And so they were friends. And that brings up a question of the Washington elite. I mean, if they're all on some level friends. And, you know, I remember once I talked to Molly Ivins and she said, oh, George W. Bush, yeah, he's a nice guy, but his policies kill people. And then you start thinking, well, wait a second, these elites, do they even understand that? Well, I agree with you. I think that they need each other. Um, they are always extracting things from each other, and they use each other. And they're in the same elite 
level. And so it's just like actors love to be with actors and writers love to be with writers and powerful politicians love to be with their own kind. So I think it's probably always been that way. And now I wish it were more that way because it used to be that political enemies in Congress, you know, went out and schmoozed together, had beers together. Uh, Their families got to know each other. And there, that laid the groundwork for compromise, which is the only way you get anything done. Which doesn't happen anymore. That's right. You also uh, wrote a book about Hillary Clinton. And, of course, a lot of talk now is that she's going to be president. Two (laughs) things. First of all, do you think that a president really has that much power, no matter who it is? I mean, they have some power, but... What do they have? And secondly, when you look at somebody like Hillary Clinton, what do you see? Well, the first question is, the President of the United States has a huge amount of power. Just think about the power that Barack Obama had to pull back on bombing ISIS three years ago, and now is being excoriated for it by our European partners, and the power he has now to say, we're going to, we're bombing in Syria. Nobody knew that we were suddenly going to be raining bombs down on Syria. He announces it and it's done. Who did that? When he was um, president and Hillary was secretary of state and she you know, deeply believed that we needed to go after ISIS in Syria at that time, she lost. He won because he's president. Hillary is an enormously complicated character. But what I've observed over the many years of writing about her and watching her and talking to her, how much she's grown. The amazing thing to many people is that Hillary didn't have independence she felt, until she was 53 years old. She could not speak with her own voice. She had to postpone her own political uh, ambitions. Uh, And all the way to the end of, you know, saving Bill Clinton from impeachment, she always had to put herself on the back burner. But at the very moment that the Senate was deciding on his impeachment, she was planning at 53 to run for the Senate and said to me, for the first time I'm making my own decisions, it's such a relief. Since then, she lost in 2008. It was a bitter loss for her, although she wouldn't allow herself the bitterness and counseled all of her bitter supporters not to waste a single minute on that, but to work together for what still can be. And that has been her approach to life. And so she just keeps moving forward. I think that's a very, very unusual and positive thing. She would be my my uh, candidate for one of the most daring women in the world. Gail Sheehy, what role do you think? And this is something since you deal with personalities in your <laughs> profiles, how should we be looking at personalities of politicians versus the policies <laughs> that they actually implement? Well, you know, the thing is that things move so quickly now that policies are pretty much not what what's going to happen when a president or even a senator or a representative gets into office. Policies are what is today. What's yesterday and tomorrow? Character. That's what mattered with Richard Nixon. You know, his policies were very popular with many Democrats. What took him down? His character. He was a paranoid. He was a, you know, disturbed man. He had no capacity for trusting anyone or being close to anyone. That was character. What brought Lyndon Johnson down? His habit of lying for his entire life. He lied about Vietnam until he was finally exposed. Uh, And then he couldn't face uh, living this lie any longer. 
what almost brought Bill Clinton down. He was a very popular president. We had peace and prosperity. But it was his character and the proclivities that came from his past that almost took him out of office. Gail Sheehy, it's also the case that you go back 20, 30 years and something like Monica Lewinsky wouldn't have even come up. They'd have been quiet about it. It wouldn't have been an issue. That kind of scandal wouldn't have necessarily happened. That's because the only journalists were men. Oh, really? That's right. It all changed when women came into political journalism in the late 60s. Why do you think that is? Because we look at the whole person. And because there's a male code that said it was okay to be uh, a Lothario, um, no matter what office you held, and to pretend that you were a moral person and that you were upholding family values. Meanwhile, in your personal life, uh, many of these leaders who were shown on the cover of New York Magazine, I mean, the New York Times Magazine last week, were living a, a lie. And the biggest liar of them all was Gary Hart. And when he was caught, nobody could figure out why would he, you know, talk to a New York Times reporter and challenge the top political reporter uh, to put a tail on me. If you don't believe these uh, these ridiculous rumors about my uh, skirt chasing, follow me. You'll be bored. Well, the opposite was true. But it wasn't. The problem with Hart was not adultery. The problem with Hart was character. And I was one who worked very hard to unfold all the antecedents of his character, starting with the Nazarene Church, a very, very repressive uh, fundamentalist sect, which denied him any pleasures, any sentient pleasures at all, all through his childhood. No radio listening, no movies, no girls, no drinking, no sex, no partying. Uh, he went right through the Nazarene College. He came out, he voted volunteered for the George McGovern campaign, and he went over the wall. He abandoned his family and his wife and slept with every girl on the campaign and ultimately palled up with Warren Beatty and became a devotee of Turnberry Isle, the Miami resort where he was caught on the party boat with Diana Rice. He had to get caught because he couldn't be a worthy man, as he had been trained to be in the church by de denying himself any sentient pleasures, and also a sinner. So he was a double man, and he imploded. And had he been the president, he would have imploded during the presidency, and it would have been terrible. Well, it sounds from reading your book, Gail Sheehy, uh, Daring My Passages, it sounds as if the first time you met him, on some level you knew that. You knew something was weird. I did. You're absolutely right. But the reason was, rather than going, you know, directly to the quarry and interviewing him before I know anything, I was moving around the outside and I was tipped off to talk to a, a, an Indian American woman called Marilyn Youngbird. And she told me these fantastic stories about how she and Gary Hart would go to the sweat lodge, would go to Indian ceremonies, would be brushed with an eagle feathers and how erotic it was and how close they were. And she gave me a note to pass on to Senator Hart, which I did uh, when I was on the campaign plane. And he said, you know Marilyn Youngberg? All excited. And I said, yes. And she gave me this note. The note said, get away from everybody, hug a tree. And he was thrilled with it. He said, she's my spiritual advisor. I said, really? And he said, yes. And she's always telling me that I should, you know, take another sweat lodge ceremony. And I said, well, her parents, who are medicine people, also prophesied that you're, you've been 
chosen by God to save the earth from destruction. He said, yes, I know. She tells me that all the time. And I said, do you believe it? Yes, he said. So when I lay this all out, I had thought this woman was just, you know, a groupie with having these fantasies about the handsome senator. But it all was true. And he got the reputation of having a flake factor. And uh, Walter Mondale, who was considering taking him on as a vice presidential candidate, backed away very fast. Do you think they're still looking at character like that? I mean, when I look at the Republican potential nominees for president, I'm appalled. And I keep thinking, you know, if somebody does a character study like that on Chris Christie, he'd be out of the picture. Or Rand Paul, they'd be out of the picture. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. Because what is revealed becomes uh, unavoidable. You see the pattern of behavior particularly when people are under stress or they have to make a major decision. Or, uh, and you see that, well, this is what we would get. Is that what we would want in the White House? Uh, and I think we'd find it more and more difficult uh, to choose presidents. And, you know, the problem is that I've interviewed so many of these characters that most of them are a little crazy. They are. They'd have to be crazy to want to run for president. It's a terrible job. It's really hard. And, but it's uh, power. That is power. I know. But you have to be a little crazy to want power that badly to sacrifice everything for it. And most of them sacrifice their marriages. Not Obama, but most of the others in one way or another. And they sacrifice friends. Um, they sacrifice privacy, of course. And if they if they make it through and still have a reputation intact, it's quite it's quite admirable and amazing and rare. Uh, I can go in different directions, but I'm going to ask you a very Berkeley question, which is a lot of people in Berkeley just simply think that when it comes to yeah. politics, the fix is in anyway from Wall Street, from uh, the military industrial complex that the fix is in. What do you think about that idea? Well, certainly our politics are all based on money. I mean, to a large degree, most of our politicians are bought by their contributors. And who are their major contributors? The Koch brothers, uh, you know, some of the Democratic uh, major hitters, and they get what they want. They get the tax breaks they want. They get the access they want. Uh, they, you know, are able to, I mean, look what happens with uh, gun control. The, the public, by and large, is for restricting gun availability and bullet availability. But it gets bigger and bigger all the time. Why? Because the NRA has all the money. Gail Sheehy, let me ask you about uh, the Sheehy Daring Project. What is it? Thank you. Well, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, is I wanted to excite particularly younger women to be more daring. The 20s are the time to be daring. Um, you can't really hurt anybody if you don't have a family yet. Uh, and you have the opportunity to fail. And this is the best thing that can happen to you when you're in your 20s, because if you fail once or twice, you find out you don't die from it. And maybe you'll take another chance and a bigger chance and become accustomed to it. Uh, and you have to do it certainly in, in the age of Silicon Valley. That's the way people make great breakthroughs. 
But in a period that we're in, which is one of great uncertainty and economic uncertainty, we're still recovering from the 2008 debacle, um, I think a lot of young people are kind of hanging on the edge, uh, wanting to be safe, wanting to get a secure job, uh, wanting to get married, maybe a little earlier this time, uh, have a family, you know, really put down roots. But we found out that, particularly for women, postponing marriage, really fulfilling getting the best education you can, and then the post-education in trying different career paths until you find the one that really fits, and then having a marriage, and then having children. Now, I know that's the old-fashioned um, line lineup of order, but it's still the one that, that the people who are most successful and have the best well-being and the most successful children is still the one that they perform. And what is the project itself? What are you trying to get? I'm trying to get stories of daring um, that young women and women of all ages can tell me. Just send me a capsule to shehedaringproject.com and I'll, I'm going to be publishing lots and lots of these capsule stories of daring. It can be anything from, as one came in the other day, a, a girl who, when she was eight years old, her farmer father, you know, picked up a huge worm when they were weeding and said, if you bite this, I'll give you five bucks. And she bit it and the green and grizzly guts came out and it was horrible, but she got five bucks for it. And she became daring thereafter. Or as somebody who's in their 50s and they just strike out on a whole new career, start something of their own, and uh, it takes them in a whole new direction. Do you think down the road we're going to be seeing a even greater proliferation of women politicians and women leaders? <laughs> Do you think that's the direction we're headed in at this point? Well, I wish we were headed in it a little more quickly because we seem to be stuck at 20% in the Senate and, and the House. Uh, but I definitely think that's it's happening. We're running up against a lot of crossfire right now, and the uh, whole women's movement seems to be stalled or on life support. Uh, but I th certainly if there is a woman president, things would change uh, very radically and quite quickly because Hillary Clinton, just as she's done all around the world, uh, would appoint a lot of women and empower a lot of women and a lot of daughters to uh, aspire hot more highly than they do now. And so your next project is going to be this, going to be a book down the road? Very likely. Uh, I think we all like to read about the stories that would be inspire us. Gail Sheehy, what do you think of gotcha journalism? Well, I think that was the, the the sort of gutter form of new journalism was okay, let's just see what bad thing we can get on the on the on a famous person. Uh what kind of gossip, what kind of you know, or half us gossip we can get up there and then you know, put the person in a position of defending it when it's not even true. Um and I think that's you know, part of our celebrity culture. Uh, and it's a very, it's an ugly form. Uh, and it's, and it's, and it disparages the more serious form, which is to actually do a character report and, and take a lot of time to analyze w what you find and then to actually compare it with the person so that they have a chance to illuminate or 
or prevaricate uh, and help you give it to get a larger picture. What role do you think Rupert Murdoch played in all that? Well, I think Rupert Murdoch has uh, cannibalized the the media, and um, he has no interest in uh, editorial integrity or uh, upholding any kind of taste standards. He's only about two things, you know, making money, which he certainly made gajillions, and uh, using his media outlets to uh, give him access to power and to get more privileges to uh, build his business and bypass rules and laws that um, that inhibit other media outlets. Special thanks to Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, for the use of their space to record this interview. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>